Hey, good to see you guys. God bless you. All right. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 30? Exodus 30. And uh, the Lord has been giving uh, since around chapter 26. We've been looking at the tabernacle, 25, 26, looking at the tabernacle, the court, uh, the various pieces of furniture. Now we're getting into things like uh, the incense, the altar of incense. So let's pick it up in verse 1, Exodus 30, where God said to Moses, You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay its top and its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold, and you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both uh, its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles uh, with which to bear it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. So, once again, if you were a priest in those days, and you entered into the tabernacle, directly in front of you, of course to the right was that small table of showbread, to the left the menorah, but directly in front of you was this small golden altar, a place where they would burn incense to uh, the Lord. It sat right in front of the veil or curtain that divided the holy place, the first compartment, with the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the altar of incense, again, was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. It was 18 inches square instead of about 3 uh, feet high. It uh, was made with a decorative molding or a rim of gold around its top edges. And it had four horns, one in each corner. Uh, not little trumpets, but horns of an animal, we'll say, looking kind of a thing, right? Uh, four horns, in each, uh, one in each corner. Uh, on the bottom, now you understand this decorative molding went around the edges. And it came over the sides a little bit. And on the bottom were attached these two gold rings on either side so if this was the uh, the altar right here you'd have a gold ring over here a gold ring here one here and one here and these would be for these uh, these acacia wood poles overlaid with gold to be slid through so that the altar could be transported on the shoulders of the levites so you know they were in the wilderness and every once in a while god had them break camp and uh, so that's how they would move it verse 7 Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps, the menorah, seven bulls uh, made up the menorah, seven oil-burning lamps. So every morning that Aaron was to burn incense on this altar while he was tending to the menorah, making sure all the cups were full of oil, wicks were trimmed, and so on. So while he was doing that, he would burn incense. And verse 8, and when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, now the Hebrew means trims so the light was never to go out once it was lit it was supposed to stay on the menorah but it had to be tended to again you have to make sure there was oil in each of the cups you had to make sure the wicks were trimmed and that's what's being said here so in the morning you burn incense while you're tending the menorah in the evening twilight you do the same thing while you're tending the menorah you are burning incense on the altar of incense and uh, god says you will burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the lord Throughout your generations, you shall not offer strange incense on it. In other words, God had a very specific recipe for the incense he wanted burned on this altar. And they weren't to, you know, buy anything, buy anything else, jeez, uh, make anything else. They weren't, weren't to go to Walmart and get some cheap stuff, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it was a special recipe that God had uh, given them for this. And uh, But they were not to offer a burnt offering on this little altar, a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. So guys, this altar was an altar for burning incense, not an altar for sacrifices and offerings. Now, 
In the Bible, incense is often symbolic of prayer. I'll just read you two of many we could look at, but Psalm 141, verse 2, it says, uh, David said, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then in Revelation 5, verse 8, we read, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, here's something you may not realize. Even though this little golden altar was not to have any animal sacrifices or grain offerings offered to God on it, nor was it to have any drink offerings poured upon it, those things were only allowed, listen, those sacrifices, animal grain offerings, drink offerings, were only allowed on the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, which was outside the tabernacle in the courtyard. We just talked about that, okay? So that was the altar that you burned, that you offered the animal sacrifices, you, uh, you did the drink offerings, and so on. Uh, that was separate from this golden altar. And yet, guys, there was a connection between the two altars in that the fire for the burning of the incense, listen, had to be taken from the fire of the altar of sacrifice, Leviticus 16, verses 12 and 13. The idea behind this was that if prayer is going to be acceptable to God, it must be based on and connected to the sacrifice for sin. Or, for us in the New Covenant, the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, any unbeliever can pray. I mean, before we got saved, many of us prayed. I know I did, okay? I said my prayers before bed ever since I was in second grade. I prayed every night uh, before I was saved. Any unbeliever can pray, but without the sacrifice of Christ applied to their life, it is nothing more than empty words. Listen to me. The only prayer that God has promised to answer an unbeliever uh, when they pray is the prayer of salvation. Basically, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I repent of my sins, and Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. God will never turn a person away who prays that prayer with a right heart. But that is the only prayer an unbeliever is guaranteed God is going to answer. Now, for those of us who are kids of his, his children, God promises to hear our prayers. He promises to answer all of our prayers. But listen, sometimes it's a no. And, you know, we don't like that so much. But God knows what's best, all right? He's in control. So, verse 10, And Aaron shall make atonement for its horns once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, even though the altar of incense wasn't a place of sacrifice, listen, it was a place of atonement. Because every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest, had to take some of the blood from the sacrifices on the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard, right? Bring it into the holy place and take some of that blood and smear it on the horns of the altar of incense. Very important point, okay? Why did God require this? Because once again, he was illustrating the connection between atonement and prayer. Just as we said, prayer doesn't atone for our sins. It comes after our sins have been atoned for. It comes after our sins, after the sacrifice for sin has been made. Then the priest went into the holy place and he burned incense on the altar of incense, signifying prayer. And even though the Day of Atonement was only once a year, every day, though, that the priest went in to burn incense on the golden altar, especially morning and evening, he would see the blood-stained horns of the altar and it would remind him of how the blood allowed us, uh, him I should say, now the blood of Christ allows all of us in the new covenant as the priests of the new covenant to come into the presence of God directly and offer our prayers. But every time the priest saw those horns stained with blood, the blood of the animal sacrifice, the blood of the sin offering, it reminded him that without the shedding of blood, there could be no communion with God. Because the person who was a sinner would bring their sacrifice to the priest, he would offer it to God, and then he would go into the holy place and would offer incense, which was a form of prayer for the person who had brought the sacrifice. 
And of course, this was the priest was the mediator. They weren't worthy to come to God directly in the Old Covenant. But um, how blessed we are because um, in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ has shed his blood for us. And as such, now the sacrifice for sin has been made. And we can come boldly into his presence anytime we want to ask God for help, mercy, to help in any kind of a crisis or need. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. But I will show you, I'll give you a couple scriptures. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. You all know it. Where it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Listen, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So sin separated us from God. Now, of course, ultimately, as unbelievers, of course, uh, Adam's sin separated humanity from God. And of course, every one of us were born of Adam. So every one of us were born fallen sinners, separated from God. We didn't have any right to come into God's presence. We were not worthy, right? Uh, but the blood of Christ has brought us near. Ephesians 2.13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So after the sacrifice for sin was made, we all received Christ, and now we're born again. And uh, now we have access to God. We can come into His presence anytime we want. Now, that brings us to the section on the ransom money. Verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "When you take the census of the children of when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every one among those who are numbered shall give." Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras, in case you were wondering. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and you shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So God is saying whenever he, listen, underline that word, whenever he commanded a census. Now here's the thing. In 2 Samuel, David at one point took an unauthorized census of the people. Remember, he had the people numbered. And God was so furious with David, he judged him in the nation. Why was God so upset with David? David had no right taking a census. He was numbering the people. You only number what belongs to you. I don't come into your house and start numbering all your stuff and put my name on it. I do that with my stuff. When my daughter was in Bible college, okay, we dropped her off there and got her all kinds of goodies from Walmart and of course, one of the things we did was we started numbering her stuff, putting her name on it and everything. We didn't start numbering her roommate's stuff, all right? You only number what belongs to you. Israel belonged to the Lord. And whenever he commanded a census, it was legitimate. Now, the first one he commanded was in Numbers chapter 1. You can check it out on your own. But when they took the, the census, every male 20 years old and above had to pay a half shekel of silver as a ransom in other words it was to buy himself basically out of death that there be no plagues among the people this guys was a payment or this payment i should say was the price of redemption remember we said already that um, silver was the metal of redemption remember they had to give a half shekel of silver silver was the metal of redemption and all the men 20 years old and above 20 was the Old Testament age of accountability. So anyone under 20 didn't have to pay. They were not considered uh, accountable to God yet. They were still under the age of accountability. You hit 20, and, and this was interesting. A few years ago, I was doing a message, and we talked about this on a Sunday morning. And one of the guys in the church came up afterwards and says, I got goosebumps. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I just heard something on the radio, okay, just yesterday, where they have proven that at age 20, Certain chemicals kick in, 
and a person is their cognitive abilities and their their ability to make right and wrong decisions dramatically increases. Isn't that interesting? I'm sure God didn't know that. It's a, just like one of those coincidences that we hear about. Um, but everybody in the census who was 20 years old and above had to pay this half shekel to redeem themselves from death. And notice what God said in verse 15 again. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now in saying this, of course, the Lord was preparing his people and all of us who are his people to understand that the price of redemption is the same for everyone. In the New Covenant, of course, it's the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now, in case you're interested... In Exodus 38, verses 25 and 26, it tells us that almost five tons of silver were collected from 603,550 men who were 20 years old and above in Israel. A good chunk of that went to make the base plate. Remember we talked about this? The tabernacle uh, was made up of boards that were acacia wood overlaid with gold. And they stood, they had tenons on the bottom of each board that fit into these silver base plates. And then, of course, the boards were placed, you know, side by side. And then it had a, uh, five boards that ran horizontal that locked it all together, thus making this a rigid structure with no roof, by the way. We talked about this. It had four different layers of things that went over to keep it uh, covered and dry. The first layer was this beautiful linen, white linen with beautiful woven tapestry on it of angels and things. And uh, when you walked into the tabernacle, you saw the golden walls. Of course, the menorah was the only light. You looked up, you would see this beautiful uh, tapestry of angels. That's what you saw on the inside. On the outside, of course, it all spoke of Christ. The last layer was uh, badger skin, which I would imagine was not that nice looking. Because when you walked up to the tabernacle, there was no beauty nor comeliness that you should desire it, just like Christ. You had, to go, you had to go inside before you saw the beauty. Just like you don't really understand the beauty of Jesus until you are in him. You're saved, okay? But all of these boards that made up this structure, the tabernacle, sat on silver base plates. Silver is the metal of redemption. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? It was also called the tent of what? Meeting. It was the place where man and God came together for the purpose of fellowship. Our fellowship with Jesus Christ is based on redemption. There can be no fellowship apart from the blood he shed to redeem us from our sins. I mean, the whole idea of us having fellowship with God is all based on the, on the reality of redemption that Jesus Christ died in our place, the substitute who died on our behalf. So much of the silver went for these base plates. There was a lot of them. I can't remember, I think 100 or so. Uh, they were pretty heavy, of course, to hold up this structure. But uh, there were other things that uh, were made of silver. Uh, there were some utensils that were used in the sacrifices to God. I think there was uh, some silver trumpets. We know that the curtain that uh, the, um, or the fence uh, that was the perimeter of this compound, the curtains were hung on these silver poles and things. And then the rest of the silver went... Uh, for other tabernacle expenses. I want you to realize later on, though, in New Testament times, this half a shekel became the annual temple tax that we read about in Matthew 17, verse 24. So they had to give this for the upkeep of the temple in those days. All right, well, that brings us to the bronze laver, verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, the brazen altar of sacrifice, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet and water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. They shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them 
to him and his descendants throughout the generations. Now, we've already talked about the labor a couple weeks ago, but let me just review quickly. When you entered into the outer courtyard, there's only one door, always to the east. Jesus said, I am the door. When you entered into the tabernacle courtyard, the first thing you saw in front of you was this brazen or brass altar of sacrifice. If you would go beyond that, the next thing you saw that stood between the brass altar of sacrifice and the tabernacle proper was this uh, large birdbath looking thing. Right? And this was the laver. And it's interesting. Well, what happened was after the priest would offer the animal sacrifice, before he could go into the tabernacle, he had to first wash his hands and feet in the laver. Now, it's interesting, as we pointed out a couple weeks ago, that this was the only object in the entire tabernacle complex that God didn't specify any dimensions for. The people could make it as big as they wanted, as big as they wanted. The reason the Lord did this was because the laver, as we've already talked about, represented the Word of God. And guys, after our sins are atoned for, by the blood of Jesus, which is what the altar of sacrifice represents. We then, as priests of the new covenant, need to wash constantly in the water of the word, Ephesians 5.26, so that our practical everyday fellowship with the Lord uh, is ongoing and unbroken. And that was the idea. Again, some people say, well, the labor was water baptism. But we only get water baptized once. The priest had to constantly wash in the labor every time sacrifices were offered. Well, I believe that the labor represents the Word of God. Once you're saved, you don't need to be saved all over again. Once the sacrifice has been offered, Jesus died once for all. But now we wash constantly in the water of God's Word to wash away the defilement of the world as we go out into the world and see the things that the world's all into and hear the, the talk and the ideas and the dirty jokes. You want to come home and just bathe your mind, okay? You know, just cleanse your mind. So that you can have a, a, a holy uh, and a pure walk with God. And that was the idea behind God telling them, look, you know, you have to wash your hands and your feet as priests constantly. The hands spoke of service, the feet, their walk. So Jesus, the Lord was saying, you know, as my priests, you have to make sure that your service is pure, not motivated by self-interest. You have to make sure your walk is pure. You know, your relationship with me and so on. If you're going to serve me, then you have to be holy. And God said if they didn't wash their hands and feet after the sacrifice, they were to be killed. He would judge them. Now, fortunately, he's not as hard on us. Although the principle still stands and it's sound. If we're going to serve the Lord as priests of the new covenant, we have to take holiness seriously. You know, none of this half-hearted, you know, and a lot of guys in ministry, I'm appalled with some of the things that they say and they do it's amazing how utterly unholy some of these guys are trying to be cool and relevant you know i mean we're supposed to be holy okay leave cool to somebody else uh, be pure be holy is the idea and um, again god didn't specify how big to make it because it represents the word of god and guess what we get to choose how much of the word we're going to wash in every day or feed upon every day. That's up to us, okay, in our walk. All right, that brings us to the holy anointing oil in verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the labor in its base. You shall consecrate them, that uh, they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister to me as priests. Now, guys, oil in the Bible, especially this oil, is emblematic of the Holy Spirit. 
Oil in the Bible is emblematic of the Holy Spirit. And the idea God is communicating, we must be, uh, the Holy Spirit must anoint us before we enter into service to God if God is going to accept our service. Uh, you remember when Abraham decided to help God out, God promised to give him and Sarah a son, right? Well, after about 13 years, nothing was happening. They weren't getting any younger. So they decided to help God out, and he went into Hagar, uh, Sarah's handmaiden, which was socially acceptable in those days, because not having a, an heir to pass your wealth down to was a great tragedy. Uh, and so uh, they helped God out, quote-unquote, and the result was that Hagar bore Ishmael. Ishmael was a work of the flesh, was not a work of the Spirit. God would eventually give, 12 years later, the promised child, that he, he Isaac. Uh, well after Abraham and Sarah were past the years of childbearing, which meant Isaac was a miracle child. I mean, they couldn't produce this child because they were dead reproductively. And so out of deadness, God brought life. God is the only one who can do that, right? But later on, about 30-some years later, in Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, Take your son, your what? Only son. And offer him on a mount I will show you, Mount Moriah, Calvary. Notice God did not even recognize Ishmael. Now look, he loved Ishmael, and he took care of Hagar and Ishmael down the road. But when we're talking about serving God, the works of the flesh are not recognized. The things we do in our own strength, our own energy, for basically our own glory, at the beam of seat of Christ, and we receive our rewards, he won't acknowledge those. To him, they'll be non-existent. So we must be anointed by the Holy Spirit if God is going to accept our service. This is what he was communicating here. Uh, in fact, I'll have you turn to a couple of scriptures. 2 Corinthians 1, and then put your finger in 1 John 2. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Paul said, Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. So Paul was saying that his ministry was really led and anointed by the Holy Spirit. I think we would all agree Paul had a pretty anointed ministry. All right? And that's why he was so effective, because God had called him, and the Holy Spirit had anointed him. So now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. 1 John 2, verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone should teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And John is basically saying, look, the Holy Spirit is your teacher. That doesn't mean we can't go to Bible college or even seminary. But not everybody is called into ministry at a point in their life where they can go to Bible college and ministry. I already had a family when God called me into ministry. Uh, after I was in ministry a few years, I went to a Bible college and took some courses, Greek, administration, organization. I took uh, some other things just to kind of take some practical stuff. But when I was there for those classes, I remember, except for Greek, of course, but I remember in all these other ones that I had taken, as the, the professor was teaching, I was like, God already taught me that. God had already showed me that. I mean, not everything, but a good chunk of it, God had already taught me firsthand by the Holy Spirit. Whom the Lord calls, he what? Equips. If God is calling you into ministry and you haven't, you know, I mean, you can't go to Bible college or seminary, we'll say. That doesn't mean you're disqualified from the ministry. I heard a very well-known pastor on the radio say one time, if you don't have a degree from a Bible college and or a seminary, you're not qualified to minister. Uh, excuse me. The apostles didn't have a seminary to go to. Well, they went to Jesus Seminary. That's right. And I've gone to HSU, Holy Spirit University. I mean, isn't that the point we're making? Well, the disciples, they hung out with Jesus. That's right. And when we let the Spirit minister to us and we're in the Word, let the Spirit teach us, 
we are hanging out with Jesus too through the Holy Spirit. That's the real, that is the real uh, mark of authenticity and power in ministry is that you have been spending a lot of time with the Lord in his word, letting his spirit teach you and so on. John says, look, you don't really have a need that any man should teach you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He's the one who wrote the Bible. I mean, don't you think he can teach you all the things you need to know to serve God? Now, let me just say this, guys. All of the spices that went into the recipe for this special holy anointing oil, have you noticed? They were all what? Sweet. They were all sweet. Nothing bitter was used in this oil. And that was because it represented the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is always sweet in the way he moves and works in our corporate services. Never is he chaotic or weird. Many Christians and unbelievers have been left with a very bitter taste of what the Holy Spirit is like from visiting churches that misrepresent Him. Their services are marked with chaos, confusion, and weirdness. I don't know if it's still going on. It might be. The Toronto Blessing. Remember the Toronto Blessing? Started in Toronto, Canada, you know, at a vineyard up there and was imported to the States and spread like wildfire. If you went to one of these churches that had been affected by the Toronto Blessing, you would have seen what was called at that time holy laughter was one of the things. What does that mean? Well, basically, you know, you just people would just start falling down laughing uncontrollably. To me, that would, if I was an unbeliever checking the church out trying to find the Lord, and people are falling over the place just laughing uncontrollably, I would think they were certifiable. I mean, they, they were nuts. All right? Also, in some of these meetings, you would hear people making animal noises, barking like dogs. You say, well, what's going on? We're all drunk in the Spirit. The Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So they equate drunkenness, you know, with alcohol. They equate it with being drunk with the Spirit. I know people have gone to churches like this, and they walked out saying, I'm never going to go back to another church the rest of my life. It was a very bitter experience. Nothing edifying there. And then, of course, there are other churches. Their services come across bitter and condemning. If anyone or any group doesn't agree with them on social issues or biblical doctrines, there's so much hatred and bitterness, you know? Look, these churches don't represent the true anointing of the Holy Spirit. They are trying to manufacture the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the very thing God forbid Israel from doing with this very special anointing oil. Verse 31, And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh. Hang on to that thought for a second. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it, according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Look, guys, too much of what passes for the anointing of the Holy Spirit today in many churches is nothing more than a counterfeit anointing. It's basically, you know, uh, an anointing, quote-unquote, that's been poured out on the flesh, you know. There's a lot, of, um, a lot of people who think that volume and emotion equals the Holy Spirit. If you're trying to manufacture or counterfeit the anointing of the Holy Spirit, if it's not there, and you want people to think it's there, and maybe you even think it's there if you do these things, well, I've, I've seen these churches. The preacher's very loud, yelling, theatrical, you know, up and down the stage area, making all kinds of gyrations. People are very emotional. Like I said, in some of these ultra-Pentecostal churches, people are literally running around the room, and, and it's craziness. In their minds, that equals the Holy Spirit, when really it's just a work of the flesh. I remember years ago, my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, was talking about how he wound up in a church service somewhere, and he said, I'm not sure how I got there. I, I don't know. I didn't know the church, and I kind of wandered in there because they had a service, uh, and I wanted to kind of go to a service that evening. And um, he says, no sooner did the service begin, I realized I was in the wrong church because pandemonium broke out literally. 
He says, at one point, some guy got up and started running around the room making these like, like uh, Indian war hoops, just screaming, you know? About that time, Chuck said, I was leaving, and I walked outside, and here comes this guy running outside, falls on the ground, and starts literally banging his head against the concrete. Chuck said, I couldn't take it. I, I walked up to him and said, sir, what are you doing? He said, the Holy Spirit's making me do it. The Holy Spirit's making me do it. He said, look, if you want to act that way, that's up to you. Don't blame the Holy Spirit. This is the craziness we see in a lot of churches where the Spirit of God is really not there. They, they try to communicate, yes, the Spirit is here. Why? Oh, look at the excitement. Look at the emotion. And really what it is is it's a man-made anointing poured out on the flesh. Look at guys. The true anointing of the Holy Spirit will only glorify God. Only glorify God by focusing on His Son, Jesus Christ. It will never, ever glorify the instrument, pastor, preacher, or the church. Remember what Jesus said before he went to the cross in John 16? He said basically, earlier he said, look, I'm going away. Where, you're, where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. I'm going to come back for you one day. But he said, I'm going to go back to the Father. I'm going to pray the Father that he send you another helper who will abide with you forever, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And when he comes, Jesus said, he will guide you into all truth, but he will not glorify himself. He won't point to himself. He'll only point to me. And when churches are putting the Holy Spirit in the spotlight, to me it tells me that is not a church where the Holy Spirit is really working. Because he will not allow himself to become the focus. He is always pointing people to Jesus for salvation or for deeper sanctification. It's always about Jesus. He will only glorify the Son. Okay, that was the special anointing oil. Now it brings us to the incense. Verse 34, And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacti, and uh, anica, and galbanum, and pure frankincense. With these sweet spices, there shall be an equal, there shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound, according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine, and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be holy to you. Excuse me. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. So here God is giving the recipe now. He talked in verses 7 to 9 about burning the incense on the altar of incense. Here he actually gives the recipe for this incense. And uh, notice that the incense, like the holy anointing oil, was to be made from a very special recipe that had to be very carefully followed. And as such, it was only for the Lord. They couldn't make any for themselves to use. It was holy, which meant it was only to be used for God. The Lord made sure that, again, the people could not make any for themselves, or it says else they would be cut off from their people. Some people think that means uh, cast outside the, the people of God. I mean, they wouldn't be allowed anymore to be a member of the community. Some believe it could even mean that they were to be killed. All right? That's how serious God, though, took this special uh, incense that was to be burned on the altar of incense. Now, we just said earlier that the incense represented prayer. And guys, true biblical prayer consists of certain ingredients. We might say a recipe that make it holy to God. There's adoration. There's confession. There's thanksgiving. There's supplication. And there's intercession. These are the ingredients that make up all true prayer. Not that you have to practice every one at the same time or uh, when you pray you have to do all of them. But they really do make up this recipe of prayer that is uh, God-honoring and what God uh, will look at and be pleased with and bless. I'll give you two examples. I won't have you turn there uh, of this very thing. 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul said, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the, and the giving of thanks be made for all men. So this is all involved in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, 
He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, here's the thing. Even though God wants us as his children to bring our requests before him daily for our physical needs, you know, food and rent and all the other things we need to live, that's totally legitimate. But understand this, even when we do that, the focus is not us, it's God. Sure, we're asking God to provide for us. But when God takes care of us as his kids, who gets the glory? God does. Because when he adopted us, when we accepted Christ, he promised to take care of us as a loving Heavenly Father. What father does not provide his children, what decent father does not provide his children with food, with shelter, with clothing, all the necessities of life? God is the same. And when we pray for our physical needs, totally legitimate, although Jesus said, look, your Heavenly Father knows the physical needs that you need, uh, even before you ask. So don't live at the level of the physical. Live at the level of the Spirit. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the other things you need in the physical will be provided for you. But it's not wrong to ask for those things, of course. We, we should. But even then, understand that those prayers are directed at God for His glory because when He takes care of us, it brings Him glory. Prayer is never to be for our own glory. We're never to ask for things that would glorify us or would um, increase our personal uh, materialism. Selfish gain is the idea. I'll have you turn to these with me. James chapter 4, starting midpoint of verse 2. Again, talking about how prayer is really all about God's glory. But uh, James 4 verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. There's a lot of people that don't receive because they just never pray. You ask, though, and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And the Greek word is where we get our word hedonism from. The idea is prayer is never to be selfish. All right. Now, it's never selfish to pray for your needs. That's, that's not wrong. And there are times, and God is so gracious... When you may pray for something that is not a need. I've told you the story how that, you know, there, you know, there was one Christmas when the kids were little. We had no money. We had no way of buying them anything for Christmas that year. And I just prayed, Lord, I know you haven't promised us gifts for Christmas. But you're so gracious, Father. I just would ask that if you could see it in your heart to just supply a little so that we can give the kids a nice Christmas. And you know what? The Lord totally came through. Now, that's not something he promised in his word he would do, but he's so gracious that even when it's even not a need, if it's a desire and we ask him for it, he may supply that. But when, you, when a person prays in a very selfish, hedonistic kind of way, God says, I'm not going to answer that prayer. It's all about your flesh. I'm not going to bless your flesh. How about John 16? Again, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he's giving them one final discourse before the cross. And in John 16, verse 23, he said, And in that day you will ask me nothing. What day? Well, I'm going away. And when I'm taken from you, I'm not going to be here for you to ask me. But in that day you won't ask me anything anymore. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you've asked nothing of the Father in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, there's a lot of Christians who read this, and they read into it a kind of a carte blanche. Jesus said, you know, ask the Father anything in my name, and you'll receive it. Okay, well, I want a Cadillac. I want a beach house. I like a boat. That would be nice, a boat, you know. Anything you ask the Father, how? In my name. Don't you understand that the name of God represented his character? And what did Jesus say? I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I do always those things that please the Father. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That was his mission. And he was turning the mission over to his church now, his disciples. And he was saying, look, I'm going back to the Father. 
but anything you need for the work of the kingdom, the saving of souls, the great commission, you ask the Father in my name because that's what I've been praying for when I've been here on the earth. It's not, you know, I can ask God for anything I want in a selfish way. It's anything we need for the work of the kingdom. It's prayer, again, is always about God's glory, right? Matthew 6. Of course, here, Jesus is giving us a model prayer. We call it the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. It was really the disciples' prayer. But he's giving them a model prayer. In Matthew 6, starting with verse 9, in this manner, he said, Therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Listen. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Your will. Somebody has said prayer is a mighty instrument, listen, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. Some people have this idea that prayer is all about persuading God to see it my way. That I can somehow convince God to give me what I want. That's not prayer. Prayer is all about spending time in His presence long enough whereby God's heart becomes your heart and the things He desires are the things you desire. And it's like, Lord, not, you know, give me my will on the earth. Lord, what is your will? And Lord, I want to be an instrument to bring your will to the earth in whatever way I can. Again, God's glory is the issue. I'll give you one more, 1 John 5. All of our prayers have to pass through the grid of God's sovereignty if they're going to be answered. 1 John 5, verse 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know we will have the petitions we have asked of Him. So again, prayer is not uh, a carte blanche thing. Whatever you want, just pray and you'll get it. You know, some people think that by ending their prayer in Jesus' name, like putting a stamp on a letter, mailing it up to heaven. And that's, as long as I end my prayer within Jesus' name, I'm going to get whatever I want. No, no. That means I'm asking for things that would be consistent with what Jesus would ask for if he were still here on the earth, which he is through his Holy Spirit. Okay? All right, quickly chapter 31, because we won't spend a lot of time with this. But in chapter 31, we see artisans anointed by God for the building of the tabernacle. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by, uh, I have called by name Bazalel, the son of Uri, uh, the son of Hur, and of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for settings, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have, a, have appointed with him Aholia, the son of uh, Azamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the table of showbread, the pure uh, gold lampstand, the menorah, with its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, and the labor and its base, the garments of the ministry, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and uh, the garments for, uh, of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded uh, you, they shall do. You know, there are many people in the body of Christ who are not gifted nor called to be pastors, preachers, teachers, and that's fine. Because God has gifted them with other giftings. You know, we see many who are gifted musicians and singers and artists, and or performers that use their talents for the glory of God. Others are gifted in woodworking, construction, finances, uh, administration, organization, and a myriad of other gifts and uh, abilities that God gives to people uh, that they can, I believe, that uh, Bazalel and Aholiab were already gifted individuals. 
They were already gifted individuals. I mean, they already knew how to work in these mediums. But when they offered their abilities to God, he put a special anointing upon them, and then, wow, the sky is the limit, right? I mean, God can take somebody with some talents and abilities, like a worship leader, and uh, they're very gifted and very good at singing and playing an instrument. Now, they can use that in the secular world, or they can become a Christian and give it to God for his glory. And if they do that, God anoints it and takes it beyond anything they could even hope or imagine as they, he begins to pour a special anointing upon that giftedness. And wow, he uses it for his glory. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, the point is God has given every one of you abilities, giftings. You think, well, not me. I don't have any giftings. I guarantee you, you, remember we, uh, I don't know if I told you the story, we were uh, taking the, the guys through the, uh, the study, uh, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And uh, this particular study had videos that went along with every lesson. And you started out with a 15 or 20 minute video, you get into the lesson then, right? And um, Blackaby and his son Richard were talking about how that when people came into the church, they would sit them down and they would begin to ask them, well, what? Do you have a passion for? Because they figure, well, that's the thing God's going to probably use, right? So one guy comes into the church one day, and um, after a few weeks, they realized that he was going to make the church his home, and he was a solid Christian. So they invited him over for coffee, and they began to ask him what he had a passion for. You know what he had a passion for? Barefoot skiing. He loved it. It's a passion, barefoot skiing. Now, the black of these are sitting there thinking, what can the Lord do with barefoot skiing? But they let this guy start a ministry. They said, you can't believe how many people got saved with this ministry. Apparently, a lot of people were interested in barefoot skiing. And God used it in a way we, we just blew our minds. So whatever you're good at, you have a passion for, pray about that. God can use it for his glory in some way. And don't write it off because, oh, it's just so insignificant. Nothing is too small that God can't use for his glory. Amen? Well, we see another little section on the Sabbath law, verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. So it does seem here that the correlation is made between being cut off and being killed. So he says they shall be put to death, they should be cut off from their people. So obviously now we do know that being cut off means being executed, okay? And uh, verse 15, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, and notice this, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Again, verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. As we've already said numerous times in the study, the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant God made with the children of Israel through Moses. It was not something he commanded the church in the new covenant to observe. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, you all know it. Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. These things pointed to Jesus. They were shadows. But when the substance came, when Jesus Christ came, the shadows passed away. And by the way, the Sabbath pointed symbolically to our rest in Christ. Now, 
if you really want to dig into this, and you weren't here when we talked about this in length in Exodus 20, uh, in verses 8 to 11, go online and get the teaching. Because we spent a lot of time talking about why the Sabbath is not for the church. Even though you have many in the church who are saying very categorically that the Sabbath is still for the church. Well, I disagree. I think it's pretty clear. But if you have some doubts, still go online, pull up the Exodus 20 study, verses 8 to 11, and we get into this in detail. Verse 18, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So all this time now, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai. We're going to find out later on, it was 40 days and 40 nights. He's up there receiving all these various laws from God, and then God gives to him the moral law, the Ten Commandments, written on two tablets of stone with the very finger of God. And some people I have heard say, Christians, because God wrote his laws on tablets of stone, stone is permanent, therefore the Ten Commandments with the Sabbath are permanent for us today. If you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see that the writer said that when God wrote his law on tablets of stone, that didn't speak of permanence, it spoke of weakness. Because tablets of stone, laws written on external tablets of stone, could not help anybody to keep those laws, right? I mean, religion, Judaism included, is all about external laws that you try to apply into your life that you are made righteous from the outside in. The problem is they never can touch the inside, the heart, right? And that's really the problem, isn't it? The fallen heart of man is the problem. Religion can only surface guns a person's life. And anybody who tries to be righteous by religion and works, rules, rituals, ceremonies, etc., become Pharisees. On the outside, they look all pure and righteous and holy. But as Jesus said of the Pharisees on the inside, they're like, you know, whitewashed tombs are full of, uh, of defilement and, uh, and all kinds of uh, wickedness. That's religion. Religion cannot touch the heart. That's why it was doomed to failure. That was the um, inherent flaw, which God knew. He, he built it into the Old Testament law. He knew it was a flaw. He knew man could not keep these laws for perfection and therefore to receive salvation. I mean, that was, it was all designed to lead us to Christ by showing us we couldn't keep those laws. But these external laws written on tablets of stone could not touch the heart. The heart was defiled. The heart is the issue. It's deceitful and, and, and desperately wicked. We needed a new heart. And that's what God did in the new covenant. He gave to us a new heart, and on that new heart, he wrote his laws. So now in the new covenant... Righteousness starts on the inside through our relationship with Christ and then gets worked out into our everyday lives as we walk with the Lord. We, we want to obey Him now. We don't need penalties. I mean, these Old Testament laws, if you broke them, there were penalties, punitive stuff. Well, in the New Covenant, we have God's, uh, we have God's laws, but they're written in our hearts. And we obey God because we love Him. Right? Not because we are fearful of punishment, going to hell. Perfect love casts out fear. I'm not worried about going to hell uh, as, a, as a Christian because I know that the blood of Christ has washed me clean. God has put his... And you know what? Now that God is in my heart, God's uh, heart has been given to me, the nature of God. Nobody has to tell me not to steal, not to cheat, not to hurt anybody. I don't want to do those things because I love the Lord. And because I love Him, I want to, be, I want to do what's right by Him and so on. And uh, that just goes along with what God said in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. He said, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, let me just say it wasn't just for Israel back then. Uh, in fact, Paul makes the big point to say in, Re in Romans 2, a true Jew is not one outwardly, because you're a descendant of Abraham, a true Jew is one inwardly because anyone who believes in God's Messiah uh, are grafted in and become spiritual Jews. And he makes the whole point how that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was not a son of promise. 
even though he was the flesh and blood descendant of Abraham, he was an unbeliever, whereas Isaac was a son of promise. And the idea was, look, it's faith. That's the key. And the new covenant is all about faith, receiving Christ, and God writes his laws in our hearts. We begin to live. Those things become a fruit of our lives. As we live out in this world, we, we're just bearing the fruit of the Spirit, living in our hearts. Amen? Now, while Moses is up on the mount, okay, down in the valley, bad stuff is a-happening. <laughs> Exodus 32. And we'll see that when we get together next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, that even though we are not under these laws, they all point to our Savior. They all have important lessons to teach us. And Father, we pray that you would give grace, that we would walk in these principles, that, Lord, we would be holy instruments in your mighty hands, never drawing glory or attention to ourselves, but only seeking to glorify you. And Lord, we just pray that the anointing of the Spirit would rest upon our lives. That, Lord, we would offer up to you the sweet incense of prayer. That, Lord, in everything we do, you'd be honored. That we would wash constantly in your word that our hands might be pure in the things we do. Our feet might be pure in the way, in the way we walk. That, Lord, everything is, 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 that we do for you is done uh, out of a right heart and so on. So, Father, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.